Welcome to the Policy and Planner English Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Laban. In our last episode, we interviewed David Waters from Community Servings, a medically tailored meals program in Boston. Medically tailored meals use food as medicine in a very specific way to treat different conditions. These programs can be appealing because, as David puts it, they use food in a way that looks a lot like other types of healthcare, as if they were prescribing pharmaceutical treatments. This is an unusual way to think about food and health. More typically, we think about food at the whole other end of the spectrum as part of preventing disease, not treating it. So what if we move over to the prevention side, but keep a lot of other traditional healthcare elements, the clinical evidence base, treatment that involves physicians and other licensed clinical staff, integrating food into conventional medical training? If we did that, we'd end up in the world of lifestyle medicine. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Fontaine. I am an obstetrician gynecologist. I've practiced at Northwestern Medical Center in St. Albans for 27 years. I did my medical school in Laval University, Quebec, Canada. And prior to medical school, I did kinesiology and a master's degree in uh, obesity and exercise physiology. So that was an influence on my practice because I've always, you know, like helping people in the lifestyle. So I helped my patient within the last 10 years of my practice to modify their lifestyle and improve their health to decrease chronic disease. And therefore, this is where I found the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. So I've been with the American College since the very beginning, uh, which was around 2004. I'm Scott Durgan. I'm the, the doc of lifestyle medicine, the director of lifestyle medicine at Springfield Medical Care Systems. Anything else there? You may have heard me mention this on previous episodes, but the question that trips my guests up the most is when I ask them to introduce themselves. If we did this as a live interview show, everything would fall apart in the first five minutes. Dr. Durgan trained at Dartmouth, spent the first half of his career as an emergency room doctor, left medicine briefly, was working with people on corrective exercise, became a certified trainer, learned about lifestyle medicine, used it in his own life, and is now at Springfield Medical Care Systems leading this department. Lest you think he is the only doctor to forget things during an introduction, Dr. Fontaine forgot to mention that she was formerly the medical director of lifestyle medicine at Northwest Medical Center, a founder of RiseVT, that she has a healthcare leadership coaching business at letsleadllc.com, and that she will soon be providing telehealth-based lifestyle medicine at plantbasedtelehealth.com. Moving on. There are two more people on the Springfield team who we interviewed, but we'll be bringing them in a little bit later. With four interviews to compile, we really need to split this into two parts to keep it manageable. Here, we'll be focusing on the lifestyle medicine framework, and next, we'll be getting into more details about how it's implemented. So, let's have some definitions. Lifestyle medicine, uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's a little bit complicated or conflicting for um, the people. But in itself, it's, it's very uh, clear. It's, it's really to, to put the accent on your lifestyle. So, lifestyle medicine is evidence-based. Uh, we approached uh, to to prevent, treat, and then even reverse di- disease. Uh, we replace unhealthy behaviors with uh, positive ones, such as eating healthfully, being physically active, managing stress, avoiding risky, risky substance and adequate sleep, and, and the strong support system. And so that, those are the, the main element that I always discuss with people when I see them and the American College 
has produced a very nice uh, focus area diagram that demonstrate that that is very helpful for physician in order to uh, assist the uh, individual. We'll link the diagram mentioned here in the show notes at plainerenglish.org. Again, the six areas that make up the lifestyle and lifestyle medicine are healthy eating, physical activity, stress management, supportive relationships, good sleep, and avoiding risky substances. At the links, you'll also find information on chronic diseases impacted by these lifestyle interventions. But here are some examples. Lifestyle medicine is, a, is an evidence-based approach where we're using parts of someone's lifestyle to address the vast majority of chronic diseases. And we, we use it in, in the most common chronic diseases we see, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, cardiac disease, anxiety, depression, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, uh, help prevent dementia. Um, the, the data is overwhelming when we really dig into the, the scientific literature on this. And so it's the most powerful thing I've come across in medicine when we're talking about trying to address chronic disease burden in our medical care system. We've got six areas to focus on and a list of chronic conditions to address. Since this series is on food and healthcare, we're going to focus on the food piece of that puzzle. And yes, we know the evidence is for a more holistic approach, so this is not the full thing. The next question is going to be, what do we mean by a healthy diet? The answer won't shock you. Food journalist Michael Pollan summed it up years ago. Eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. What we're really going after is evidence-based eating. We want to use the best science on the planet. You know, we've got over 100 years of observational studies. We've got over 50 years of interventional studies that all point to the same foods, evidence-based foods that just happen to be whole real foods without a lot of added junk. That evidence-based eating comes out to be a term, but you could label it many different ways as whole food plant-based, but it is not an all or nothing. Your biochemistry, your physiology, your genetics aren't going to only benefit if you go all whole food plant-based. We can see very small percentages and changes in diet have dramatic effects in preventing diabetes or morbidity, mortality, premature death. That spectrum really helps. When we look at the studies, and certainly from my own personal journey, I've noticed the same thing. I don't necessarily demand that I never have meat or cheese or any of those things, but I feel so much better. See, I told you it wasn't shocking. But that in itself should be a little bit surprising. If the guidance here feels like common sense, what's so revolutionary about lifestyle medicine? More than you might think, because the fact of the matter is that healthcare in America is set up as if we didn't know these things. We don't invest in these components of health. As far as I know, yes, there are elements and it may be termed different things throughout the, the state, but it's still, a, uh, you could just look at our healthcare spending and I'll probably get these numbers wrong, but what do we spend on preventative healthcare, even though 80% of our dollars are spent on chronic disease, we might spend like 3% on preventative care or 1%. It's a really small number and we're doing the same thing. One of the big struggles with lifestyle medicine is um, it's definitely a, a tool that should be a, a basis of primary care and, and healthcare and what we provide, but it's, it's a very small fraction right now. Those prevention numbers likely aren't far off. All of primary care accounts for around 10% of healthcare spending in Vermont, using a pretty broad definition of primary care. Prevention activities would be a small subset of that total amount. We also don't prioritize physicians learning about nutrition and staying current with what to tell their patients. According to the Harvard School of Public Health, fewer than one in five medical schools require any nutrition course. The aspirational goal, put forward by the National Academy of Sciences, is merely 25 hours over the course of four years. 
much less time than I personally spend watching The Great British Bake Off. The thing is that physician, and, and I was part of them, when we do our you know background, we have a very minimal hours into nutrition. Uh, and therefore, it is difficult to really uh, being present uh, for our client, patient. And, and we have an impact. We have such a strong impact. People listen to us. So we have to um, have the information, the right information to give them. There's also an issue we've talked about before in the care coordination episode, which is that most healthcare payments are structured in a particular way around patients coming in for a formal visit where they receive a defined set of medical services from a provider with a certain level of clinical license. Well, what if the best treatment involves having someone available to spend a few months coaching you through food planning and preparation? Or checking in frequently with your physician to make course corrections in daily habits that will add up to big change over time, but won't add up to anything at all if you have one visit, then get discouraged when the lifestyle changes you discussed don't pan out after you get home. I think most commonly we're trying to have them touch base with someone on the team every week or two, because when you look at behavioral change, you usually have about a week or so roughly um, when you're trying to institute a new habit, it's going to start to wane unless you have someone there to talk to you about, okay, what's going well, what's not going well to really help with that behavior change. Now, what about paying for those services and also for the food that goes with them? This is beginning to sound like the last episode, back to food as medicine. It's a theme. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I have lots of dreams where, you know, if we had a, a food pharmacy or food pantry where we could prescribe, you know, a healthy box of foods or healthy recipes and be able to deliver that to the patients, I think in our clinics we serve, that would be unbelievably useful. Um, we, we've, we've got places around the nation where they've actually um, spent money on food and saved much more on chronic diseases from those foods that we, we delivered. Um, so that food education and, and cooking classes, oftentimes the skill involved in cooking, like I'm not a very good cook at all, but that skill is, is a confidence level that's interfering with them wanting to eat whole food plant-based or eat healthier foods. So being able to support the biggest struggles we have with lifestyle medicine is being able, we know what we could do to help folks, but we don't have the resources there, the system there yet to support being able to bring these things like uh, skill teaching, building. There are ways to address these shortfalls. For example, the College of Lifestyle Medicine supports medical training and continuing education. They work to keep a network of health professionals, both current in their knowledge and consistent across practices. You have to accumulate some uh, continuous medical education. So usually by going to a conference or doing some uh, education into the world of lifestyle medicine. You know, after a certain time, I don't even know how long it took me to (laughs) accumulate those CME, but, uh, you know, you have the board examination. Obviously, I kind of knew that this was coming. I have been a member since 2004. So I knew that 2017, I would do my board certification. So it was basically a written examination that was done at the time of the conference. Now, I want to say also that the fascinating thing about this board is that the uh, American Colleges of Lifestyle Medicine, the same uh, system exists all over the world. I think there's now 27 uh, associations. There's one in Australia, in Asia, in England, 
it's all the same exam. So when you think about silo, lifestyle medicine has expanded and use all the same uh, requirement. And, and you have to continue like in any other uh, specialty, you have to continue doing your SAMI every, uh, you know, three years, you have to recertify, but it's mainly usually by, by doing your continuous medical education, by doing the, you know, a webinar or readings or going to conference. We can also change the way we pay for healthcare. Our podcast is in a whole series on this topic and it's complicated. The short version is that there are models to restructure how we reimburse healthcare providers to emphasize both upstream prevention and also flexibility within practices for projects like lifestyle medicine. The two key terms are fee-for-service, where payment is based on the volume of services provided, and value-based, where payment is based on keeping patients healthy so that they don't need as many future medical services. As a physician, I know that the majority of physicians are used to be pay for service and it's a rolling business um, where you can make more money the more patient you see. Value base uh, is there to encourage you to save money and make sure that your patients are healthy. This is totally different than what we're doing. We are at this moment in medicine. Medicine is uh, treating people that are sick again. They're sick because of their lifestyle. We can change all that. And we're not totally ready for that. This is basically prevention. And we all know that we need to invest in prevention, but we don't. It's a very, very uh, difficult uh, situation, but I I am adamant. They absolutely uh, a huge need of turning that corner to a value-based system. And then uh, we have more time to spend with patients and we need to change their lifestyle. We need to support them. Practices are finding workarounds on the current limitations. Obviously they are, or I wouldn't have anyone to interview for this podcast. But it's far from a standard part of how we, as a country, approach healthcare. And lifestyle medicine practitioners would tell you that it's a lousy value proposition to build a system focused on what to do after we get sick, not on how to stay healthy. Yeah, we, I mean, we struggle. We really only survive. We often pay for folks to work with well coaches or trainers and the gym. And it's really, we've got to come up with resources to try and provide these because our our patient population is not going to afford them. Um, And we know they can have tremendous benefits for them, but we have to continually figure out how to fund them and what we can fund and what resources we have. And um, those really aren't in the healthcare system um, yet to be routinely used. We, We kind of cobble together what we can. And, you know, I know right now we're the CHIP program, incredibly evidence-based, probably the best evidence-based program there is for reversing chronic disease with food. But we've got like two sessions left and we're like, okay, how can we get funding to keep providing these these for the patients? Because they're not going to, our, our patients aren't going to be able to afford it. Same with well coaching. We know they're tremendously beneficial and the healthcare system is looking at trying to get reimbursement for that, but right now it doesn't exist. So the only way we can help a person go through accountability and change is to have someone like a well coach um, support them, but we got to figure out how to pay for it. And so um, those are some of the ongoing struggles. I said at the top that this episode was going to be two parts. So let's wrap up this half of the conversation. Key points are, there is such thing as lifestyle medicine. It supports evidence-based preventive medicine. It emphasizes healthy eating, physical activity, stress management, supportive relationships, good sleep, and avoiding risky substances. Healthy eating in this case means a plant-based diet. 
If you want more nuance, there's plenty available, and I will post links in the show notes at plainerenglish.org. But we leave here with an important question. You may have noticed that a largely vegan diet made up of whole foods is not the most popular diet in America. So how do you encourage a community to shift in that direction? We'll start to answer that question in our next episode of the Policy in Plainer English podcast. Thank you.